Well, you're right. I kind of forgot that I was in a room and I kind of went back to the horse passion and I went back and I was like, please, can I have a horse? Like, it just seems ridiculous. I can't have a fully grown horse in, wow. a, in, a, in a room. I mean, how you big can. is this room? It's huge. You're lucky. You can have a horse and you may, oh wait, that's fine. But obviously, you know, I would. Welcome to Room 808, the imaginary room where we will give you the eight things which will make your life happier, healthier and more comfortable. Brought to you from Meditation Rocks, hosted by founder Lucy Stone. So today's guest is a complete golden girl. She won Great Britain's first individual gold medal for the Skeleton Bob at the Vancouver Winter Olympics in 2010. She's gone on to become a mother to two boys, a TV presenter and commentator, a rally co-driver and a personal trainer. And she's an all-round wonder woman. I'm also lucky enough to call her a friend. I'm so happy to welcome my first ever guest to Room 808. It's the fabulous Amy Williams. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy. Thank you. I'm very excited to be your first guest. (laughs) So with Room 808 then, we are locked in. We've all had a bit of experience of that recently. Uh, Just quickly tell me what your lockdown experience has been like as a mother of two young boys. Um, well, I guess it has been interesting. Uh, in one sense, I feel like nothing has really changed. Uh, routines are the same. They still need to eat and drink and be fed and do their outdoor activities. Um, I think it was very tough when the nurseries were shut, uh, like everyone in schools. That kind of took away those few days of of them being with friends and you having a little tiny break. Um, but now I think we kind of crack on. We're very outdoorsy family and people so we're outdoors all the time going for walks and um, just trying to keep things as normal as possible um, as we all can. And have you learned any like random new skills in lockdown? Have you been baking banana bread till it's been coming out of your ears? Uh, well, at the beginning, I started making loads of cardboard art for the boys. So my boys are like one and not quite one and a half and three and a half. And um, any box that would come through the post suddenly became a car or um, a, a little prison for their toys or a jail. You know, like, so that's what I started doing. And that soon just disappeared when all these cardboard boxes were floating around the house. Um, bacon there's always banana bread because bananas as you know with children they either eat them every day for a week or then they don't touch them for weeks and so yeah I mean that is a favorite of of bacon and then I kind of stopped because I thought oh crikey we have to exercise more to burn it all off so um yeah it's just trying to find that balance this second time round. <laughs> And and as a former Olympic athlete, obviously the Olympics couldn't happen in, in Tokyo in the summer. Can you imagine what that would have been like for those athletes that are trained every day for years and years and to have that opportunity taken away from them? Oh, like heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. I think 
not many people realize unless you are an athlete and an Olympic sport athlete is that your your life is in four year cycles and Olympics is every four years. Um, I mean, obviously for us watching, it's every two because there's a winter, a summer, a winter, a summer. But your life and your peaking and how you perform and how you train is to peak towards that one event that one day or two days of racing um so absolutely heartbreaking i think for some people that might be their chance gone because if they were a lot older or they've got reoccurring injuries and they're having to balance all of that other people could be like you know whooping in joy because it gives them suddenly that extra that extra time to actually prepare and get ready so yeah i do really feel for them but it's the same for everyone so they have to just refocus you know control the controllables do what they can and focus on all those positives and hopefully you know our team gb will still perform just as well and i guess the uncertainty of not knowing whether it will even happen next year i mean how would you be motivating yourself to not even know if that big event was even you know another year away Oh, I know exactly. And we've obviously got uh, the Winter Olympians who are doing just that. They're out on the ice now. They're out on the snow. They're all trying to prep. I think you have to be positive. You have to believe it's going to happen. And, and that's your goal. And you have to perform. You have to still you know, prepare yourself in the same way, because if it does happen, you want to be ready. You know, you can't have lost any time. And if it doesn't, well, then it doesn't. There'll be massive disappointments. There'll be tears, no doubt. But that's the same for everyone. So I think you've got to imagine it is and, and always go for the best case scenario. And then you do have plan A, plan B, plan C, you know, the, the different scenarios just in case. But I think definitely I wouldn't be focusing on that. I would just be going with the positive. Brilliant. Well, let's move to room 808 now. So we always ask our guests for what view would you have from your room 808? If we could recreate this room anywhere in the world, what would you like to be looking out at? Well, I have uh, an incredible view from my house and we put in a huge glass window. So I'm very used to seeing green fields, countryside, trees, you know, a hill in the background, um, animals. You know, I need to have horses, dogs, sheep, cows. Um, and on the flip side, I want to kind of almost see the turquoise blue sea and the sand. And so I, I'm kind of seeing if I can combine both of them, if possible. <laughs> A little bit of um, the green countryside and a little twinkle of blue sea. I love that. You're, you're a very outdoorsy person. I mean, what does nature bring to your health and, and well-being? And do you feel the difference if you're stuck inside for a, a very long time without that fresh air and outdoors experience? Yeah, I think growing up, we were a family that it was like traditional every Sunday after Sunday lunch off on a walk and dad's walks would be one hour to four hours if we got lost. It was like, you know, your typical map and we go wrong. Um, so that was just part of our life growing up. We didn't have a TV growing up. So we were always outside in the garden, you know, adventures. It, it was fresh air, go out, um, all weathers. And then I think as an athlete, I got so used to spending six months of my life out in the open air in the elements competing training uh and then the summer life would be back home training inside a gym so now it's just normal it's that i have to do something active every day whether it's just a walk whether it's just walking my boys down to nursery and back or whether it is managing that little 10 minute snippet of you know a leg burner a glute workout um burn your abs for a little bit um, don't get me wrong I have days where I don't manage anything at all and the weeks go past and you're like oh my I've been meaning to go for a jog and I just haven't you know I'm as busy as everyone else but 
I think to have that intention just to try that one little thing um and I really encourage it now with with my boys we get muddy we pop the wellies on and we're out there you know yeah fresh air in the in the hair and in room 808 we recreate one of your most favorite meals and this might be at a a posh restaurant that you've been to but what meal did you choose for us to recreate for you in room 808 amy you know what it might come as a surprise but yes um a macaroni cheese so i i did have two answers for you i had the posh you know steak truffle chip fries (laughs) that you get in posh restaurants and a bit of tomato but actually my um I would always request my mum to cook her macaroni cheese she used to hide it sounds really weird but she'd hide like boiled eggs in there she'd put um tuna fish in and she'd do this amazing like crunchy topping with oats and herbs and stuff and before uh the night before I'd go away on the winter season when I was competing I'd have all my friends over and we'd sit around the big table and mum would cook this huge well several huge macaroni cheeses and it just became this traditional kind of last meal supper uh and then after the end of the winter season sort of six months later we'd do exactly the same and bring everyone back and it would be just like this gathering and it was just delicious just you can't beat it home cooked loads of cheese it was all this special topping you see it was like the magic top um and that just became a traditional thing to do and does she still make it for you you know what i cannot even remember the last time (gasps) she's gonna have to I know, and I do make my own. And the magic topping, I have had a few friends, you know, like request it. So, um, no, I have to say, I need to, well, after all this lockdown, that's the thing now. I can't sit around and mm. sit and have my macaroni cheese. But yeah, you're right. Maybe that should be our gathering when we're all allowed to sit around a table together. I'll, I'll re- get her to recreate it. And was food important? I'm, I'm guessing it absolutely was. When you were a training athlete, you had to eat, right, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, totally. So not to say life was consumed by food, but it actually kind of was because you were training. I was training maybe two to three sessions a day, every single day. Your fuel was so important, making sure each meal was really high in protein. You know, you were working those muscles so hard, training them in the gym. Uh, you know, you're, you're basically breaking the fibers in, in your muscles and you need them to repair, you know, really strong back together. So that protein was really important. So, so yeah, actually as an athlete, I mean, in one sense, food was quite dull. I stuck to the same thing all the time. You know, it was just, I need to cook it and eat it in five minutes. So it was quite bish bash bosh, um, but it didn't matter because it was fuel and that's all it was. It was to build your muscle, to make you stronger, to recover, to repair, um and and it was quite black and white in that sense and you know you were in bed early you didn't go out to fancy restaurants you didn't do any of that it it was just quite um a blinkered approach to life and everything that went in my body was only things that were good for me so I didn't drink alcohol I didn't have the cakes I didn't have ice cream I didn't have chocolate it was only is this food going to make my body stronger yes or no and that's the way I went and trust me I am a chocoholic now (laughs) Um, and I love my red wine uh, and gin but yeah as an (laughs) athlete I was really strict. What was your breakfast can you remember on your gold medal morning can you remember what your gold medal run was fueled by I'm guessing it wasn't macaroni cheese. No it wasn't and to be fair (laughs) it probably wasn't my usual because you know, you're in a massive Olympic village. You're, you're in this huge 
um, tent, like this big food hall tent. So although there, there is, I mean, you could eat anything at, at seven o'clock in the morning, you could be having um, a McDonald's if you wanted to, you could be having noodles with chicken because everyone competed and everything was all around the clock. So it was like constant food all the time. But I mean, what I would normally have was a bowl of muesli. So I would have half muesli. And if I could get my hands on it, I'd have crunchy nut cornflakes on the top. <laughs> Because I do there's like an endorsement. I know. <laughs> Can you imagine? That'd be amazing. Um, and then you know, if you could, if you were somewhere, and yeah, I would have protein, so I'd have some eggs, um, whether it was boiled eggs, scrambled eggs, um, so a little bit of a mixture, um, to be yeah. honest with you. But yeah, I do have a bit of a sweet tooth in that sense, so I mix <laughs> it up it. with the good and the bad. <laughs> that was the only bad thing. Um, and obviously a cup of coffee, but not too much um, coffee because actually we had rules about how much caffeine we could have. Oh, interesting. Well, wow, that's so interesting. So going on to the Room 808 bookcase, it's fully stocked. It's, it's got some good things on there. But what book would you most like us to make sure we had on the shelf? I kind of was like, okay, which which author did I really like, love and go for? And to be fair, um, an author called Nicholas Evans, uh, he wrote The Horse Whisperer, which came into a big movie. That was really lovely. And because I have such a love and a passion of horses and used to ride a lot when I was younger, um, the whole film is about the relationship between the horse and the girl. And the girl has a big accident and the horse has an accident. And it's how they rebuild their trust. It's about the magical powers of horses, the horse whispering. So yeah, it's kind of tied up with um, Monty Roberts, who is the original horse whisperer, who, you know, his theory was that you read the language of the horse and you work together and therefore you get, you create this amazing bond. So, I mean, all of that, it was a, it's a lovely story all about relationships with the humans and with the horses. And a lot of his further books are all about yeah, the relationship between people, the psychology, and there's always some animal element into it, but intertwined. So I just really enjoyed. And in fact, even saying this, I, I feel like I need to re-go back to them and, and reread them all. I haven't read it, so you've actually sold it to me. I'm going to go away and, and try and get my hands on that one. And this takes us on to what stuff or kit would you like in Room 808 for you to have a hobby whilst you're in there? And I wondered whether you were going to say artist equipment or weights or something like that. But no, Amy, what did you ask for as your uh, hobby item in an actual room? Well, you're right. I kind of forgot that I was in a room and I kind of went back to the horse passion and I went back and I was like please gonna have a horse like I miss riding so much um so <laughs> actually where I live now there are fields and as a childhood without my tv I looked after and rode other people's horses so at one point I was looking after about three horses at once I'd never had a riding lesson I just used to jump on them and one day I got caught and you know the the, the girl was like look do you want to officially actually properly look after these horses? So I did. So um, it's something that when I did skeleton, I had to kind of say goodbye to because I couldn't look after these animals. And um, yeah, I, I just haven't really, I, I've dabbled, but yeah, it just seems ridiculous. I can't have a fully grown horse in, wow. a, in, a, in a room. I mean, how you big can. is this room? <laughs> it's huge. You're lucky. You can have a horse in room 808. That's fine. But obviously, you know, I would have my family and boys, but that's the obvious <laughs> question. So I might yeah. just stick with the horse. Maybe Let's a little tiny pony. Let's Maybe a little small. Shetland pony. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> just to keep you company with its big eyes. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but actually, talking of horses, you you were doing modern pentathlon, weren't you, before skeleton? Yeah, not many people know that. Yeah. Well, to say I did it is a very strong word. So um, I basically discovered skeleton and modern pentathlon at the same time. They're both, or still are, both based at the University of Bath, which was their national training centre. And I was kind of, I was doing an art foundation course at the time at Bath College. So I wanted to go on and do an art degree, but it, I just was dabbling and I was got friends with some of the modern pentathletes and I got invited along to their training session so I was starting to learn how to do the fencing and the fencing drills I managed to pick up the shooting really quickly uh the swimming I did struggle with although I had done a lot of swimming in my childhood it was just that distance it was just hardcore I mean 50 meters is a long way in a swimming pool um and obviously they do a lot longer when they're competing um and then the running was long. So although I had had this athletics background, it was, yeah, it was, it was tough, but I absolutely loved it. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and then at the same time, I went off and was chatting to some people in the gym who happened to be bobsleigh and skeleton athletes. And I went down and tried this start track where you sprint pushing a sled on wheels. And it's just that very start of a skeleton race. And happened to be really good and picked it up really quickly as well. So I went off and tried an ice camp with, um, it was a military army ice camp. And I kind of came back from that and I kind of realized I have to make this decision already really. Um, if only you could split yourself in two, but modern pentathlon having five events, you, you had to go all in. And then skeleton, you know, was so different with the speed, the power, the explosiveness. Um, so I decided the only reason I went for skeleton is it the Sydney Olympics had just finished uh, in 2000 and modern pentathlon were very successful, brought home medals. And I kind of realized there were so many good athletes. It would take me a long time to kind of reach that top, I guess. And then skeleton, the Salt Lake City Games had just finished in 2002. So quite a few athletes had retired out of the sport. So there was that little more of an opening and a window that I thought, in I go. I could get to the top. I could reach, you know, competing for Team GB, have that Olympic um, rings, potentially have that GB flag on my chest a lot quicker. So I kind of went straight that was it, I'm going to do skeleton. So it was almost a quite a strategic decision almost, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, um, which I probably didn't realise at the time, but it was really kind of, okay, I have two opportunities. Modern Pentathlon were going to put me straight on to funding, straight on to that lower level funding. And I still joke with the coach now, if I see him, mm. he's like, when are you going to come back? Um, mm. And then the skeleton, which was the opposite, they had zero funding, no money. There was nothing in the sport. I didn't even know the sport. I spent two weeks on the ice and I was already kind of quitting that. Uh, well, I, I didn't go to art university and I thought, right, okay. Um, it was just more, I really want to compete for my country. I really want to see and be the best that I can. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know. It was obviously meant to be. Absolutely. I mean, what was it like? You, you, you say you went to this military camp in, in Norway. Tell me what it was like that very first time that maybe in a semi-professional watched or observed environment, you threw yourself down the track, obviously very with a lot of talent and technical ability. But what was it like? I mean, I've never done it. 
tell me tell me how it feels when you're at the top of the track and and you're going to do it for the very first time if you can remember yeah um the first time is is the scariest time but I think probably your second time is more scary um so we don't go from the top to begin with you kind of go down from let's just say corner four so a few corners down so it's a little bit slower you lie on the sled and literally someone else just pushes you off so you do baby steps to begin with I say baby steps there's still no breaks there's no way of stopping halfway if you don't like it like you just have to get to the bottom and that's it um it's like a washing machine you're being bumped all over the place. Um, back then, it's not like we had necessarily any any real teaching. So now it's quite, it, it's a very scientific sport and you learn about it in the classroom almost. You learn about the highs and the lows of the oscillations and the lines and the pressure points, where to get speed out of corners. Whereas for me, it was pretty much off you go, lie on the sled and, and get yourself down. Um, but I'm still very good friends with um, the lady that pushed me off from the <laughs> army. I'm still good friends with her. Um, she pushed me down and we've almost got that, that bond for life now. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a washing machine. You're scared. You're, you've got this excitement. You've got the fear. You've got the speed, the adrenaline, uh, that unknown feeling. And then there's something that just makes you want to go down that you don't hit all the walls. I don't want to hit 10 walls. I want to hit nine. I want to hit eight. I want to hit seven. I don't want to hit any walls. Um, and then I think that addiction comes of switching off from the speed and you realise you just want to perfect your lines on the way down. And, and that technical side of it takes over. Talk me through a couple of numbers then. What speed are you roughly going down how long I know there's it's under 20 tracks isn't there in the world when you're on the circuit how how long does it take to do the run how many corners are there I mean talk me through a few statistics that people listening haven't you know watched it before so you're averaging anywhere between let's just say 70 and 85 miles per hour um so pretty quick you're literally your chin is well, the lower, the better, a centimetre off the ground. Every track is roughly 1,400 to 1,800 metres long and can take roughly 45 seconds to just over a minute to get down. Yeah, so if you imagine the Formula One, you have different tracks all around the world. They're all slightly different. Let's face it, they've all got left and right corners. There might be some little inclines. There might be some declines. At the end of the day, you've got to get around every single corner in the fastest line. And, and that's what we're trying to do. Then you throw in a sprint at the top. So we stand next to our sled. We generally push it with one hand. So you're blasting off um, the blocks at the top, sprinting your way, pushing your sled, and then elegantly diving onto the sled. And then you're driving it, it down. So, yeah, we have kind of the two parts where our life in the summer is then spent purely on that explosive sprint start. So we're, we're training like a 100 meter sprinter, being explosive as we can off the start, loads of core stability, stomach strength to be able to hold your position on the sled. And then you have the other side of the driving skills where you're learning every inch of the track, the, the profile of the ice, um, we really look into the ice, so the temperature of the ice, the humidity, um, the texture of the eyes, all these different things decide what equipment you use. So what runners you put on your sled and your runners are then like the tires on a car. 
So Lewis Hamilton would choose, well, his team would choose different tyres with a different tread, depending if it's a bit wet, drizzly rain, dry, you know, whatever. We kind of do the same with our runners to give us the most amount of grip or not grip, depending on what you want on the ice. And the margin for error is tiny, isn't it? I mean, as well, I was reading about the, the amount of time that might split the winner with po- place 10, for example, or place 20. What sort of margins are we talking about? You know, for example, your gold medal run, roughly, what, what was splitting that top three? Um, well, I have to say, um, I had won by the biggest margins, I think. And again, I'm so terrible. I can't even remember my own times at the Olympics. I was about 58 or 56 hundredth in front of second place. And that's like the biggest margin. It hasn't ever been done like that before. Um, my world junior championships, which I was gutted about, I, um, I was in Germany and a German won. I came second and that was one one hundredth of a second. Um, so there you are, that's different. So in an Olympics, you go over four runs, so two days of racing, two runs per day, and every one of those four runs get added up. And yeah, you can have an Olympics where it comes down to a tenth of a second, over four runs. So it's an incredible amount of, well, there is no limit. You know, it, you're talking like, a tiny bit of hair you know like um it's really an incredible um sport in that sense where you just can't make mistakes or you just you have to be the most consistent slider you can't have one wicked run and one terrible one because actually they all have to you know they all count they all get added and then so therefore your mental strength must be incredibly strong you know you must be quite resilient would you say you're a resilient person that you almost de-layer situations and that you can just take each one as a new situation and, and deal with that because you have to be consistent and you can't overthink things I'm guessing or, or do you talk me through how your your mental your mental strength is so yeah I mean definitely 100% as an athlete yeah you you were so focused um you knew what you were doing you had a plan for everything. So even in every single corner on the track, I had my ideal line through the corner and my ideal steers. If you went in one inch to the left or to the right or slightly angled, you had another set of steers that you'd have to do to be able to get out. So all of these different scenarios, you would pre-practice and run through in your head and have a different plan, all within split seconds of decisions. So in that sense, you were very planned and ordered Every day was the same. You prepared exactly the same way. Your body, your mind, your sled, your equipment. You know, yeah, same thing every day, day in, day out. And that, for me, brought the consistency. There was no room for error. You had to be consistent. I think life post being an athlete, I almost wanted to take that all away. You know, I wanted to be sporadic. And I think when I retired, every day of every life, every week was different because different jobs, I never knew what was going to happen the next day. And I think I really liked that. And then I kind of come back now and I'm like, oh, I do want a little bit of structure. I do quite like just knowing where I am. Um, Am I as resilient? No, probably not. But I think when it really matters, then yes, 100%, I can switch on. I could go back into old athlete mode, I think, quite quickly. Um, But it's quite nice not having to be like that. And you mentioned sort of injuries, you've mentioned injuries, and obviously when you did decide to retire, how did you feel at that point? Was it a sense of relief 
that oh that time is I've done I've reached the peak I can park that and move on to new challenges or was there almost a sense of mourning or grief over that you couldn't continue with this career that you'd worked so hard for or a combination of both do you think I think it was definitely both. So, um, yeah, I guess there's two reasons why I retired. Um, yeah, the main one clearly was injuries. I, you know, I had a lot of back disc problems, um, several degenerative bulging discs in my lower back and in my neck. So they were constant pain, sciatic pain. I had injections all the time, nerve root blocks. So, I mean, constant, and it still plagues me most days to this day. So that was was tough. And um, I'd had two knee operations um, before the Olympics, and I had to change a lot of my training. I couldn't lift heavy anymore. I couldn't squat heavy. I couldn't do all that heavy power lifting, but it didn't matter because I still adapted it, and I was still the strongest I've ever been at the Olympics. But post the um, post retiring, I then still had to have two more major knee operations. So. I think um, I decided to stop in that sense. It was my decision. Uh, on the flip side, there was a lot of politics as well. And I felt, um, yeah, for many different reasons, I was quite forced out as well. So I think with both of it, with the team, the dynamics, um, the, the sport at the time had really shifted and changed. It was the right time. And I thought to myself, okay, Although I really believe I can go to another Olympics in two years, I really believe I could go and get another medal and I really wanted to. The, the sports doctor, number one, was the one who was like, you need to stop. You've got to look after your body for the rest of your life. Like, you've got your medal, hang up those spikes. So I think it was him who was, you know, really was on that side of it. Like, look after your body. You've got one body. Stop. And then I think because of the politics side of it, I was like, yeah, you know what? There's a whole world out there. There is a whole new chapter of life. Um, it's a tough life being out there on the circuit, six months away from home, six months back at home. You know, and I, my, my twin sister was married. She'd had a little girl. And, you know, I was like, hang on a minute. Like, I need all this too. So I think, um, yeah, it was the right decision. I don't regret it. But if there was one thing I would say, like if I had to think of one regret in life, it was that I didn't fight more. And actually, maybe if I had made some different decisions, I would have stuck with it for another two years. Um, so, yeah, I don't regret it at all because it led me to my life now. But, yeah, there probably is an area that I would potentially go back to. A the Amy Williams I, I, I know and love and, and see here, I mean, family and personal life aside, Amy Williams, the person that I'm looking at now, if you were the Olympic athlete, if I take you back to 2010, would you do anything differently? I mean, you'd maybe touched on it then. Are you a different person as you've got older and maybe wiser? <laughs> um, and put you, put, put you back into 2010, how would you have behaved differently, better or, or worse, if you like? I think the girl back in 2010, I was, what, 27? I mean, naturally a very shy person, um, not outspoken, you know, definitely prefer just to be in the background doing my thing which I think worked well because when it came to um, the build-up around the Olympics, you know, I just squirreled away in the gym doing my thing. I didn't get caught up in the limelight of 
the media and everything, I just kind of put my head down and did my day job. So that probably worked well for me. Um, yeah, I think probably back to the team, I, I probably could have and should have been a lot more outspoken about my feelings. But um, no, I mean, it all worked well, wasn't it? I think since winning and since literally stepping off that track, since having that medal around my neck and cameras then in your face, I have had to change. I've had to become um, more confident. I've had to become more outspoken. You know, I suddenly realised I've got this story to tell, children, school kids, businesses. You know, I go around doing a lot of corporate talks now and you realise actually you you need to stand up there in front of people and, and tell your story um, and, and share things. So definitely I've changed in that sense. And on the flip side, oh, anyone who knows me, uh, I'm just the same girl underneath it all. The social media obviously wasn't as big then as it is now. I mean, that's a whole massive change for the athletes that they have to kind of have a presence, a public presence. They're not so easily squirreling away in the gym. Do you think you'd have coped well with that? Yeah, it definitely has changed a lot. I, I remember... Um, you know, I think with Twitter, uh, I don't even know if Instagram was around. I don't think it was. Twitter was just on the, the dabble and I didn't join it for a few years more afterwards. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it, Facebook was the big thing. And I, I looked back at it. So February was 10 years. So when it was my 10 year anniversary, I went back onto Facebook and I tried to go, you know, scroll all the way back, put in your timeline. And I, I wrote, you know, right, I'm logging off now. Got a bit of a race to do. I'll speak to you afterwards and let you know how I get on, you know, with all my friends joking. And I do. I remember that was it. You weren't on it. You know, you didn't have the Internet. You weren't on the computer. That's it. You just did your job. You did the same thing, not worrying about all those things. Um, you might have, you know, text your mum back at home, but that was it. Um, nowadays, I think even uh, with all the social media, I would still say the same to athletes. If I was them, I would just shut off to it. Do your job. Focus about if you get that medal, it will come to you afterwards. Um, but I think, you know, on the flip side, I mean, I came out of it. You know, and if you were in the London Olympics, I mean, you picked up what a million followers overnight kind of thing. You know, you were out there. It was advertised a lot more. You suddenly did have huge sponsorship de deals and opportunities. And, you know, their faces, the London Olympians, their faces are, you know, known all across Britain now and all across the world. So it's quite different for winter athletes. Um, we're slowly obviously getting out there every single four years. It gets a little bit bigger and bigger. But it, it's quite different between the summer and winter sports, I think, and that exposure. Mm. And we'll go back to our Room 808 for a moment. I've arranged for one guest to come, family aside, because they're a given that you'd like to see them. Is there one person that you would like to knock on the door of Room 808 for you to have maybe afternoon tea with or a, a little glass of red wine looking at your lovely view? Who would you like at the door? This was such a tricky one. Um... And I had a few answers of different, you know, from your movie stars to whatever. And then it boiled down that I think I just want the queen. I just <laughs> want, you know, her Royal Highness. I I just think she's an incredible woman. I, um, I mean, her aside, I'm a massive fan of like the series, you know, the crown and anything to do with our history and um, what the royal family have done and I guess it links in doesn't it with being an Olympian you wear that 
Union Jack flag on you, you know, you sing your national anthem, it gives me goosebumps. Um, and so, yeah, I think she's just an incredibly strong, resilient, unbelievable woman. So I'd like to know what a little a conversation would be like on the What sofa. would be the first thing you'd ask her? What if you just had a conversation? Well, this is the thing. What, I actually would. I just would be know what speechless. Say her. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to. Um, a bit like you know, you'd you'd want to really think of different things to say. And I think even now, when I when I have been lucky enough to meet different really famous people and you're like I want to speak to them but I don't want to ask them those general questions that everyone asks them and you all have you know we all have you know maybe five to ten questions that everyone asks you but what's the what's the question that they don't get asked that you could just crack up a normal conversation um and yeah I don't know I'd I'd really have to think about it Um, ask her how she makes the macaroni cheese maybe or how she likes it it? yeah I mean (laughs) I don't know. I think, I mean, obviously common ground would be horses, wouldn't it? You know, I'd love to go on a ride with the Queen. You know, wouldn't that be lovely? Yeah, maybe. I'm just thinking we could, well, the horse is in the room. Well, maybe she could bring her horse with her when she comes to match your horse. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, you've publicly said, I listened to you on another podcast and you said that although it was a great privilege to receive your MBE, you were a slightly bit disappointed that it wasn't the Queen giving it to you. But it was Princess Anne, a fellow Olympian. So it must have been nice to have another sort of female sportswoman give you your very well-deserved MBE. Yeah, of course. I mean, it was a a magical day. It was, you know, unbelievable to get dressed up. I think that was then the first time I'd been to Buckingham Palace I've been very lucky to have gone a few times now for garden parties and and amazing events but yeah to go with my parents to all get dressed up to um you know be walking around the halls and the rooms of Buckingham Palace just again that history I mean it was so nerve-wracking it was you know you know the protocol of making sure you did your curtsy completely right and say you know even now I'm like, was it mom or ma'am? Like, you know, you're, you're trying to like, make sure you say it in the right way. Um, but yeah, Princess Anne, I had met several times before, whether it was around sporting events or around the Olympics. So it was at least nice to see that kind of friendly face. Um, and I can't even remember what we chatted about, but you know, they're very ask, polite, yeah. says a few questions. Um, but yeah, can you imagine if it was the Queen? It. It's total potluck who you get, actually. It, you don't know who it is. You just get given a list of dates. Which date can you make? Plop. Um, any of them. It must have been such a special day for your parents, though. I mean, what they've obviously supported you incredibly. I've heard you talking about them driving you to, to places and, and being there. Were they there when you got your gold medal? Were they in Vancouver? Mm, yes, so they were. Um you know, it's so expensive for anyone to go out there, as you can imagine, you know, flights across to Canada, hotels around Olympics. And frequently, my dad, um, who's um, a professor of chemistry up at the University of Bath, he actually had a conference. So weirdly, they were already out there. And I had actually a year previous, was it one year or two years previously, I had joined him with my mum to go to Vancouver, because he was on a conference, to get the feeling and I wanted to see what it was like and we went to investigate where the track was and it was still being built so I kind of like already wanted to kind of have that feeling of that city and then he was back out there the week before the Olympics so they came on in closer had that room I don't know they were down in the Whistler village for a few nights 
came on in, the two of them, they had their tickets to watch the event like every other punter. Um, and yeah, so they were there. So after I had won and I was literally at the bottom of the track, I mean, there's obviously swarms of faces. You don't know where they are. You know, I'd spoken them before the race. Oh, you know, my parents like, good luck, do your best. You know, like really blase. <laughs> like you do to your boys, I guess, if they have a sports yeah, day. <laughs> they say the same old thing, just do your best, you know. Um, so I remember seeing my dad's face um and someone at this point I'm trying to sort of scrummage around with this flag behind me that I don't even get out properly because yeah I'm too shy and embarrassed and I'm like everyone's looking at me and I never actually got to see my mum's face I didn't quite know where she was um and then afterwards you've got media you've got um your drugs testing you have to you know go with your stranger and do your little wee test and in and amongst all of that I was taken down to the bottom of the track in the pitch black where all the bobsleigh containers were so the huge big metal containers I had my drugs testing lady next to me because she can't let you out of her sight and there were policemen everywhere and I did someone had got my parents and we had a hug and there is a photo somewhere in the middle of nowhere in this car park with all these containers and we do have this lovely hug um, and that was the first time I got to then see oh. them um, and then obviously I think I spent the next day with them in and around media. And then, yeah, they flew off back to England and then it was the closing ceremony. And then I came on back. Amazing. So um, such an amazing achievement. I just want to ask you quickly then about music, changing the subject entirely. So Roommate 08 has a lovely um, record player in the corner. What album or artist are you hoping we've got amongst our collection? Mm, this is tricky this is tricky because um I'm quite random I'm not I love music but I'm not one of those I have to have music on and normally when I'm in the house on my own sometimes I just have it deadly silent when you don't have little people's voices um however I do have a secret love for country west uh country music country and western not your proper hillbilly twangy um but I love Carrie Underwood and I love the Dixie Chicks at the moment. But my friend who lives in Austin, Texas, my lovely friend Tanya Streeter, once made me a mixed CD for my car. And it's got every type of country music on. And I kept coming back to the same ones. And I'd be like, oh, what's this again? Oh, it's the Dixie Chicks. Oh, it's Carrie Underwood. So I don't know, which one shall I say? You can have both. I'll let you have both. That's oh, fine. Right. Thank you. That's... You can have the compilation album that your friend made for you, maybe. Thanks. That would be perfect. <laughs> but I can't imagine country music was the kind of motivational pumping music you might have for preparing to go down the uh, track, though. Or did you have something quite chilled on? I literally had a mixture between opera music, um, uh, let's think, you know, there was a bit of Pavarotti. There was, um, what's his name, Joss Groban. There was, you know, a big mixture of really beautiful songs that kind of send shivers up your spine to, I don't know, dance music, um, Sonique. I'd have a lot of Sonique because I could, <laughs> it was that kind of real sing to it, happy yeah. sort of dance music. I'd do all my warm up to Sonique, honestly. Um, and then there could be something like Country Western because for me, it was that balance of 
being pumped up enough that you need to explode off the blocks but actually you're then calm and the more thing that music gave me was just being happy you know I really had to find this happy chilled out space to try and get rid of the nerves to try and you know calm myself down I was more be calm than be psyched up I I just needed to have a smile, have a sing song, you know, go into my own little happy place. Um, and that's when I always performed at my best. Brilliant. That is so lovely to hear. I just, it's interesting. We've allowed you one luxury item in Room 808. It's fairly well stocked in there, so you're going to be comfortable. But what luxury item, other than your horse, would you like in Room 808? So, um, you know what, depending on how long I'm in this room for, and if there's several nights away in this room, that I have to bring in my own bed. I mean, I just love my bed. I love my pillows, my feather pillows, my thick feather duvet. I'm a terrible sleeper. I'm horrendous. I have to sleep with earplugs in. I... I have to have it pitch black. So maybe there needs to be blackout blinds all at the same time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <One thing>. <laughs> <laughs> the bed, the bed. Um, and actually when I would travel around as an athlete, I would always bring my own pillow. This pillow has changed over time. Clearly I don't have the same pillow from like 10, 15, 20 years ago, but my own pillow because of not being able to sleep well, I think if you've still got that one comfort under your head, that's, you know, what you're familiar with and that pillowcase that smells, you know, of your home then I think that's a really important thing. Tell me about not being able to sleep then Amy because why is that is that because you have a busy mind or do you just not are you not able to relax talk me through it. I don't know I've tried to really think about this and I really think I need to see some kind of like guru because I do everything you're meant to I don't go on my phone I calm myself down I have my hot tea I try and read a bit of book you know I do all of that I used to share a room with my sister growing up. So I was used to someone else being in the room in that sense. I think then when I was started to compete and we literally could be four, six, eight of us in one room trying to sleep as we were competing, you know, and I think you were nervous all the time. You never slept well. Everyone was making all sorts of noises. So can I blame it on that? I don't know if that's sort of somewhere psychologically in there. Then I actually, before the Olympics, the year before the Olympics, I paid to have my own room. So I actually did have my own space, my own room, my own pillow. The hotels all got that little bit nicer and better. So the beds did get more and more comfortable. I don't know. And now um, I think it's just maybe being a mum for like, what, three and a half years, I haven't had a decent night's sleep. Someone once told me, you know, count backwards from like 300. I do all of that. I try and do the heavy breathing. I do the square meditation meditation I try and do all of that I'm just terrible yeah it's a real kind of thing I I, maybe I need to find like a get hypnotized or something into just helping me sleep because it's interesting that you say that you find it hard to switch off at night but then you've mentioned that when you were performing and, and competing that you were able to kind of let go and be pretty calm at the top of that track and to feel the track as you were you know, going down at those incredible speeds. So it's it's strange that almost you have these two sides to the to the to the brain and to the mind. Yeah, I think probably, you know, when you were at the top of the track, yeah, that was your job that you were trained to do and you were able to try and empty. I mean, don't get me wrong, you're still very aware of the people and the noises and the camera, but you do find this real bubble. 
Um, I mean, I still didn't sleep well then. I remember being, you know, I was always on kind of like natural sleeping pills, you know, anything that I could legally, you know, take that was just calming and, you know, able to like de-stress. So I still was quite a bad sleeper in that sense. But I don't know whether as an athlete and, and in that moment as an athlete, you don't have to think of anything else. And maybe now, yes, you could argue you don't have to think of anything else when you're sleeping. And my husband just says, shut your eyes and go to sleep. It's as simple as that. And he's Mr. Military Man, so he could sleep standing up. That's the really annoying thing. You know, he literally within three seconds has shut his eyes and he is snoring. Um, and maybe as a mum, you're just constantly, you just trying not to think that they're going to wake up, but you know, they're going to wake up because they have done for three and a half years, you know, and I think, oh, you know, they wake up at a set time every day and then you do, even though they have slept through, you're still waking up. I don't know. It's really irritating. <laughs> so roommate, oh wait, might actually be a little mini break for you then with your horse. Oh my word. Have yeah. a couple of good nights yeah. sleep. Yeah. And your macaroni cheese and the queen. It's sounding like a little bit of heaven for you. Isn't it? And I think actually it reminds me of like this kind of lockdown process. Now you've got the two kind of different people and we I we have one friend actually she's joined into our bubble so um, my best friend she lives on her own and you know the first lockdown of however many weeks on her own were hell for her she really struggled she found it really hard you know being on her own and then there was me and another friend who've got you know young families who are like oh, we'd do anything to have a week on our own two weeks on our own to to watch everything we could dream of on Netflix to to sleep to to read books to do all these extra things to paint the spare room like <laughs> all these things I was like I would love that and it's so funny how you have these two different people in lockdown who actually have got very separate different kind of lives of one really wishing they were the other person and, and vice versa totally totally get that well we are coming to the end of our roommate 08 experience um amy and there's a visitor's book that i'd like you just to leave a little comment for future guests and what i'd like you to do is to give us a little kind of life lesson or thought or even a mantra whatever you want it to be just something for us to ponder on that you'd like us to that's been useful for you a hundred percent. And this definitely goes back to my Olympic experience and sort of life as an athlete that I learned the hard way. But first of all, I'd write down is listen to your gut. I think listen to that feeling inside that feeling that is always talking to you is always telling you this is the right and the wrong. You know, when you know, should I do that one extra thing? Should I, you know, for us, um, I don't know, choose an equipment of our race. Should I do this? Should I do that? I think your gut always knows. Or I, So yeah, that's my, that's my one. And I, you know, I think everyone has that feeling inside when they know what's right and wrong. Um, and I think also if I write down next to it, it's control the controllables. Also a real sporting mantra. You can't control the timing of your race. For us, our race was delayed because the sun was melting the top of the track. You can't control that. It's the same for everyone. The athletes now can't control if that Olympic Games is delayed or not. We can't control how long lockdown is going to be. We can't control this virus. You know, you can only do and control what you can do. So I think, um, yeah, just just keep calm. Um, yeah, listen to that gut feeling and and always, you know, listen to what you know deep down is the right thing to do. 
Really lovely. Really, lo some life lessons for us to take from to sport or to business or for parenting, whatever you want to take from that. Some really, really lovely thoughts there. Thanks, Amy. Just one final question. You have done so many things. You've been a rally. We haven't even had time to talk about everything, but a rally co-driver, a TV presenter, you're a qualified personal trainer. What's your next challenge? What would you like to do that you haven't done yet? It's a big question. If you could have a little trip out of room 808 and there was an opportunity waiting for you outside, what would you love that to be? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I'm in the middle, I guess, of just making it true now with becoming a personal trainer, setting up my home gym, getting some lovely clients on board. Um, and I think the next one, which I really should have done by now, is that I am, well, I am in the middle-ish, not in the middle. I'm at the very start of writing a book. So I've always wanted to write a book. I've always wanted to share tips, lessons um, of my sport in life to young aspiring athletes. So um, I'll, I'll let you into a secret. By November, I was meant to have written the whole 50,000 words. Um, I signed a contract at the start of March thinking I'd have all the time in the world in lockdown. I haven't, unsurprisingly, and setting up my PT business. So, oh, uh, I've only written about 9,000 words out of 50,000. So I really need to nail that. And I would love to have that book in my hand. It's not an autobiography as such. It's not a kind of taking you through my life, but it is going to be chapters on resilience, on teamwork, on setbacks, on injuries, top tips of how to get through them. So yeah, I, I need to get pen to paper, fingers to keyboard and get going on that. I'm sure it'll be an amazing read. I'll look forward to getting my hands on a copy. And I'm, we might even stock it in Room 808. Who knows? Oh, brilliant. Thanks. <laughs> the, the, the horse will enjoy having a little look at it. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been such a delight. And even though I, I, I know you and love you, I've learned so much more about you um, just in this hour or so. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been and lovely see speaking you. to you. I'll see you very soon. Lots of love. Thank you. Thank you so much to Amy Williams. Next week joining us in Room 808 is comedian Henning Vane. Hopefully you can join us then. Well, I obviously didn't call myself the unofficial comedy ambassador. I'm the German comedy ambassador and you'll try to tell me, tell me any different. Um, I have got a brilliant letter that was from the German embassy and they have got with me their own special stem where it says German embassy. And I've got an invitation from the German embassy and that's addressed to the German comedy ambassador. <laughs> <laughs>